Welcome to the State Support Team 11 podcast. I'm your host, Eric Neal. Today, we are joined by Jill Kramer. Jill is the English Learner Coordinator at the ESC of Central Ohio. Welcome, Jill. How are you? Hello, Eric. I'm fine. Thanks for inviting me to speak on your podcast today. No, it's great to have you with us. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to support educators in their work with English learners, students, and families? So I grew up in New Zealand, um, and as a young woman, I did the New Zealand version of Peace Corps. So I was teaching English in a Pacific Island nation called Tonga, and that's where I sort of caught the bug. I found my passion was teaching English. So when I returned to New Zealand, I went uh, back to teaching at a middle school. Um, however, I took classes to get, to get my TESOL certificate at that time. Then as many young Kiwis, New Zealanders do, I set off to see the world and uh, spent a couple of years traveling through Asia, Europe, uh, Africa, the Americas, and ended up in, of all places, Columbus, Ohio. Um, so uh, once I was here, I worked first with adult ESL learners and then K to 12. Um, I had my teaching license from New Zealand. I added the license here, a master's in TESOL and a master's in educational leadership. Uh, so I taught in a district for many years, and then uh, four years ago, I decided to move to the ESC because I felt like I would have a bigger impact on ELs. So uh, in my current position, I get to work with ELs uh, all around central Ohio, the Cleveland area, and in fact, many parts of Ohio. Yeah, I myself am a transplant to Columbus, Ohio. I lived most of my life in in Orange County, California. And uh, I, a lot of times people ask me that, like, how did you end up in Columbus? But, you know, speaking of Columbus, it's actually an incredibly diverse city compared to many others in the Midwest, you know, with Ohio State University being here, uh, many national and even international companies located here. You know, it is to be expected, but uh, what's been surprising to me lately is that I'm hearing many immigrant communities are settling in the suburban and rural districts that I support here in the region in central Ohio. Have you been hearing the same things? Yes, yes, I have. In fact, um, I arrived here in the 1980s and at that time Columbus was not diverse at all. I remember being in a, a store that people might remember Gold Circle and I heard somebody speak Spanish and my head just whipped around because having traveled I was used to hearing other languages. Uh, in fact, it was very difficult to even get an ESL job uh, back in the 80s. Uh, but then in the 1990s, we had um, the, the uh, Somali immigrants who arrived, refugees, and then followed by a lot of Hispanics, uh, more Asians. And now in central Ohio, we have an incredibly diverse uh, population. Uh, there would be dozens of languages spoken. And in fact, a big district like Columbus City Schools, Southwestern Dublin can have 40 or 50 up to 80 different languages spoken. So yes, we are incredibly diverse right now. Um, it's amazing to see the, uh, how the community has changed, the ethnic restaurants we have. Uh, so it's really made Columbus, I think, a wonderful place to live. Uh, but yes, you're right. So as families first come, they typically live in the city of Columbus. And then we've just more recently seen families moving out into the outer suburbs, rural areas, I think possibly for housing. So there are some districts that had a very small population that suddenly were having 100 or 200 percent increase from year to year. Um, in fact, some districts that, you know, 10, 20, 30 percent of their students are now ELs. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, a lot of the work I do at the state support team is centered around continuous improvement, 
you know, we work with these districts that are in differentiated accountability. Um, a lot of times they're, they're focused schools, which means they have uh, large achievement gaps in one of the 10 federally recognized student groups. English language learners fall into one of those groups. And, you know, to, to get that calculation included on your state report card used to be a big number. And then what they did is they started lowering that numbers to make sure that you know, if you had even a small population of English learners that you were going to need to put things in place to, to make sure that they were being served properly, which I, I think is the right thing to do. But it also, like you said, in some of these areas where they may have had one or two students uh, that were designated English learners. Now, if you have 20, all of a sudden, this, this becomes not only something that's the right thing to do, but something legally that, that you're required to address. Um, what are some of the, the legal obligations that English learners um, districts have that they, that they need to be worried about? Yeah, so being an English learner is a little bit different than some people um, confuse it with special ed. Being an English learner is actually a temporary condition. Almost all of our English learners are going to learn English in about five years. So it's, a, it's very temporary. And in fact, former ELs go on to do amazing things. Um, I've had former ELs that are at university, have gone on to professional careers. Uh, it has been wonderful to see. But ELs as a group are a protected class of students um, under the Civil Rights Act and under different case law, for example, um, Lau versus Nichols. Um, there are now 10 legal obligations that districts have to English learners. Uh, and it's really important to follow these, of course. So one is that uh, we actually have to provide English language services, ESL services, EL services, there are different names. Um, so people say, well, at what point do you have to have an EL program? There is no magic number. Uh, if you have one student, one EL, you have to have something for them. You have to have a program. Uh, it may not be a formal program. Perhaps when you get to that 20, 25 students, you really need to be looking at having a, a teacher. So you have to have English language assistance in some form. Uh, then eventually you'll have to have a licensed TESOL teacher with resources. So that's one thing, providing the EL services. Secondly, we have to make sure that our ELs have access to the curriculum. We can't say, well, let them learn English first and then they can come to the classes. Uh, no, ELs have to be receiving uh, curriculum, grade level curriculum from day one. Even a newcomer has to have access to that. Um, in order to do that, teachers need to scaffold and differentiate so that the students can learn those grade level content, uh, concepts and content. Um, then there's another requirement that's important to know. We have to communicate with parents and families in the language that they can understand. So that could be a translation if the parents are literate, but not all parents or not all people are literate in the language that they speak. So it could also be interpretation. So the districts are legally required and parents have the right to receive any information that goes to English speaking families should also go to non-English speaking families. And that's not necessarily even just EL families. There could be other families in your district whose children speak English, but mom and dad don't. So there are other ones, for example, students have to be placed in their age appropriate grade level. You don't want to put an eighth grade student down in second grade because he doesn't speak English. That, we can't do that. It did happen a long, long time ago, but it doesn't happen anymore. Uh, so for um, high school, though, you do need to look at transcripts and you need to set the student up for success. 
but those are the most important of the legal obligations. See a lot of overlap with, um, you know, how you would do just things that are considered good teaching that will help English learners. You talked about scaffolding and things like that. Um, I'm on a statewide work group for universal design for learning. Uh, you know, many, many of these things are, are great for all students, but students with disabilities, um, you know, all, all different types of, of groups can benefit from, from some of these things that I imagine are helpful to English learners. Absolutely. Yes, we often just say that the strategies we use for ELs are, in fact, really good teaching. So one of those strategies is explicit uh, vocabulary instruction. So we know that a bigger vocabulary leads to greater reading comprehension, which leads to greater academic success. And our ELs uh, have a huge vocabulary gap. So we have to be very explicit in teaching um, vocabulary, both you know, social language and academic language too. But um, if you were a teacher in um, a district where perhaps you don't have an EL program and you don't have a coordinator and ESL teachers, um, you may be looking for resources and thinking, oh my gosh, what strategies should I use? I have one EL in my class, he barely speaks English, what should I use? Well, the good thing is there's a lot of resources out there now, which is really great. So there are a lot of really good books out there if you would want to just find an excellent professional book, um, and I can certainly help by providing lists of those books. Um, online research, you can find there are websites devoted just to teaching ELs that have lists of scaffolds. There are some really great recorded webinars that you can listen to um, during the pandemic. A lot of organizations and um, companies pre you know, presented these wonderful webinars. So you could make yourself, uh, you could make, keep yourself busy the entire Christmas break watching those videos. Um, and then um, some districts use what is called SIOP, S-I-O-P, SIOP training. It's actually a protocol, a sheltered instruction protocol. So it's not like a curriculum or anything. It's just a, a lot of strategies that are really helpful with ELs, but as you said, also helpful with all other students, like building background. That helps all students. The explicit vocabulary, that helps all students. Um, so some districts train their teachers in SIOP um, uh, for big, bigger districts. Um, then in my position here as the ESL coordinator, I go to districts all around uh, the area and provide some of these best practices, either the full PSYOP training or partial. Um, there are other people that do that too. Then at the ESC, we offer a series of professional development, um, which are available for anybody to attend for a small fee. So you could always go to the ESC of Central Ohio's website to see what we have uh, coming up. Definitely reaching to you and uh, you know accessing all of the things that the ESC have to offer are the first place I would start with if I was looking for support services for my district. Are, are there any other tools that districts can use uh, when they, they look to strengthen their, their ESL programs or maybe even just diagnose the strength of their ESL programs? Right, so there's a funding source called Title III. Um, it is uh, federal funds that are designated specifically for ELs. So districts that get Title III funds should do an annual evaluation of their program. And programs are always in flux, right? Maybe a district starts with, you know, one family comes and they're, oh, now we've suddenly got one or two or three ESL students. And as the program grows, then, you know, it'll need to be changed, obviously. Um, so it's a sort of a continuum. 
what's in place now might work, but maybe next year won't work. So we're always wanting to be continuously improving the program through that annual evaluation. Um, that is something that I can certainly help with. If districts, typically I go into districts and we go through all the aspects of their EL program and create some goals. What are some things that we need to work on? Are they meeting compliance? But are they not just meeting compliance, but going beyond that, you know, to ensure that they're getting that rigorous standards-based instruction for the students? Um, so districts really should be looking at what, what are research and evidence-based practices in teaching ELs? Are we doing that? And teaching ELs, as I mentioned, it's not just the EL teacher responsibility. I think for many, many years, it was often considered, well, that's, that's one of Jill's kids. That's, he's an EL kid. But now we know that these EL kids are all of our kids. And classroom teachers have taken on a lot of the responsibility because we can't in one period a day teach them English. So um, getting all teachers on board, getting all teachers trained in our PSYOP or best practices so that all teachers are helping the students improve their English language. Parent engagement is, is a huge thing that's going on for, for all students right now, how to like authentically engage families, not you know just we, we had back to school night, check it off the list, we're done. But engaging families of English learners can be very challenging, even with something just like trying to send the, the information or a newsletter or things like that home. Uh, you know, I, I think about, you know, we've talked about, uh, you know, internally translation services, you know, how, who can we access to, to translate our materials and things so that we're getting our information out into the field. And, you know, some of those things are, are not obvious or easy to locate. Is that, is that something else that you can guide people to if they were going to reach out to you? Yes, yes, that family engagement is absolutely crucial. And I have to say, if one thing came out of the pandemic, one positive, it was that um, teachers were really forced to rely on families um, to help their children access online instruction. Um, so it also gave teachers a really good look into the family home, realizing that there may be three or four siblings all trying to use one, you know, one Chromebook, Chromebook. So it certainly did bring a lot of things um, to the forefront, which was good. But yes, um, with EL families, there are a lot of um, barriers that we can certainly help. Uh, one, of course, is the language barrier. Uh, also, some EL families, the parents themselves may not have received an education. So school is kind of a scary place for, for parents. Um, in some cultures, teachers are held on a very high pedestal and teachers are ex of the experts. And just as you wouldn't go to your doctor and tell your doctor, uh, I think I have such and such and I want this medication, parents feel they can't go to the school and tell this highly educated teacher that their kid needs something. So a part of it is helping the parents understand that we're, we form a partnership here. We are working together, teacher and parent working to support the child. Um, and really helping the parents feel comfortable coming into the school and as the pandemic hopefully is winding down, we're able to physically get more parents in. Uh, because really that face-to-face -face interaction with parents is very important, um, especially coming from a culture where that is sort of the way you operate, is more face-to-face. -face. So the you know Zoom and other online things are not quite as good. But yes, definitely getting parents on board. Um, translation is great if the parents are literate. Um, and just running something through Google Translate doesn't always work. Google Translate is not perfect. So some families will find it more confusing if you put something, um, you know, 
through Google Translate in Nepali, it may not actually be what you're trying to communicate. Um, but as I said, we have that legal responsibility to make sure parents understand. So whether it is through translation or whether we could use a service where you call on a phone and you say, I need a Nepali translator, they come on the phone, they bring the family in on another line, and then you can all talk together. And that also helps um, understand like cultural differences, uh, educational speak, you know, we tend to speak in a lot of um, words that poor parents have no idea what we're talking about. But um, when we do partner with the families and when we really make sure that it's a really strong relationship, it really helps. Um, luckily, as an ESL teacher, I would work often in this, with the same families for years. I'd be in a building, so I would know the parents, I would work with their kids, multiple, multiple kids over the years. Um, and that relationship was so important because the families need to know there's one teacher in that building or one staff member that they can feel that they can go to and understand. Um, and also that I could understand their needs. For example, just an example is um, snow days. Um, often they didn't realize uh, that school was canceled. They didn't know why the bus didn't come. So the children walked off to school in you know 15 degrees, heavy snow, got to school, it was locked. Um, you know, things like that. So I was, as an ESL teacher, I would always be making sure I had that line of communication open, could uh, text the parents, let them know, no school, no school, just um, things like that. So making sure that they were really part of the school community, making sure that they were welcomed. And that comes all the way from your administrators, from your principals all the way down. Those parents should feel welcomed when they walk into that school and feel that they're very much part of their child's educational team. You, you hit on something there that is, is very important in all parent engagement, but probably even more important. It's, it's intentionally reaching out to them to let them know that they're welcome. Because in our minds, we're like, we're welcoming people. We're educators. Of course, of course you're welcome. But in this case, like you said, with, for, for cultural reasons, for um, just being in a new place, and, you know, I put myself in those shoes a lot of times. If you dropped me off, you know, in a village in France somewhere and I had to fend for myself, I would be very confused and, and wary about just walking into places and asking for help. So yeah, it, it's, it really is incumbent on us to, to reach out and, and make it completely clear that we want you here. We want you involved. We want you to speak up if you do have an issue and, you know, because we were here to support and, and help your student. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one thing I've noticed is uh, many EL students are being referred for special education identification and services. Um, have you found that EL-related issues can sometimes be confused with learning disabilities? Yes, yes. This has been a really long time problem with either over-identification or under-identification. If we look at the Ohio numbers as a whole, um, the number of Ohio ELs identified as having a special ed mirrors the non-EL population. So on the surface, it looks actually quite good. But if we look at individual districts, we definitely see that over-identification or under-identification. Um, one issue is that there are still a lot of myths that surround this whole process. Um, if the students have those low incidence, you know, medical issues, um, deafness, blindness, that's not a problem. It's the, the specific learning disabilities and speech and language impairment where you find that over and under identification. 
because as you said, a lot of language learning difficulties or language learning in general just mirrors a disability. So if a student is having trouble with reading comprehension, hmm, is it language or is it a learning disability? And it's often really hard to tease that out, but it's very important to tease that out because the one thing is my many years of teaching, I hated seeing my ELs being identified as an English, as a, a student with special, with special needs when I knew that they were not, I knew it for sure. So um, there are these myths that, oh, you can't identify an EL until they've been in the country for two years. That is not correct. Or, oh, speech and language. No, 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 we, we don't deal with ELs in that because it's probably something to do with their first language. No, that's not correct. But unfortunately, these myths are still quite rife. Um, and we're, we're trying to let people know. We wanna make sure that the identification is always appropriate. So the one thing we really need to look at is that really strong tier one instruction, the prevention part of it. Are the ELs getting that strong tier one? Are they getting those scaffolds? Are they getting the assistance they need in the general ed classroom to help them close that gap? Are they getting a really good rigorous standards-based EL instruction from an EL teacher? Um, often when we look back, we find out that some of those kids kind of just languished in the classroom. And really, they, they are smart kids. They just lacked that opportunity to learn. So um, when a disability is suspected, a district really needs to look into all these linguistic factors, backgrounds, and cultural factors, um, because there are, uh, those things can really affect how a student is learning. So on the Ohio Department of Education website, there are some documents that um, list all these factors. And uh, districts can use this as a guide to look at the student's linguistic background. You know, um, how long have they been in the country? How much ESL have they had? How are they in their first language? Is, is the same issue happening in their first language as is happening in their second language? So it's really important um, for somebody with knowledge of second language acquisition to be part of the team for a referral or an IEP. One thing that gets really confusing is the difference between social language and academic language. So social language, that's sort of the language of just, you know, chit chat conversation, that can develop in under three years. So a student can sound great. They have no accent. They can talk about their weekend and their family and they sound great, and yet they're struggling. And that is because they don't yet have academic language. We know that it can take anything from five to 10 years to develop academic language. And that's meaning the vocabulary, but also the sentence structure and the text structures of academic text. That is something that um, the kids may not be exposed to. So a student could be misidentified because you're thinking, well, they speak English well, why are they not making progress? And that's where somebody with a language background, language acquisition background, can explain that difference between the social and the academic language. So um, yes, it's very easily confused and it does take time and it's not an easy process. Um, so you know, we often try to tend to, to be cautious because we don't want to over-identify because once a student is identified as a disability, sometimes expectations go down. We don't want that to happen. Right. It, it, it's really a, a challenge because um, it, it's a difficult thing, I think, to put together this really, really robust EL structures and services and things in a district. But that also 
like really can only work to its full potential if you're like you said your core instruction is working well your in uh your students with disabilities identification and services structure is working well you know a, a lot of times depending depending where you land your district may be working through challenges with one or all of these different things which re really do add to the importance of 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 getting the right people in place which which leads me to this question. Um, I, I feel like, you know, I've noticed a lot that the student preparation programs, you know, in our, our higher education institutions um, are, are still doing things the, the way they did them, you know, 20 years ago when, when I was in a, a student preparation program. And, and things have, have changed so much and there's so much more uh, specialized information and skills that are needed for these people that are going in to work in these districts, not just in the classroom, but administratively, you know, how do you think we could partner with our higher ed institutions to, to make sure that these new teachers are coming in with the skills that they need them to serve our EL students? Mm. So currently there is no requirement in Ohio that our pre-service teachers, our student teachers receive any specific training in ELs. Some universities do weave some of it in. Um, over, Overall in Ohio, our numbers are still pretty low. So in the country as a whole, 10% of our K-12 population are ELs, but here in Ohio, it's only 3.5%. So I don't think we've kind of reached the number yet where it becomes so critical. But as I mentioned, there are certain districts here that can have you know, 10, 20, 30% of their students as ELs. So pre-service teachers really need to know how to work with ELs because if they don't have one now or when they first you know, start the profession, they will eventually have an EL. So um, I would hope that eventually we could get universities to offer a class or at least weave in ELs as a special need throughout their, um, their preparation programs. But since that doesn't, isn't happening right now, I just really encourage pre-service teachers and in-service teachers to take it upon themselves uh, right now to, to get that training, to find out how they can help their ELs. Uh, so, you know, look for those books, take those classes, find some extra PD, look at those webinars online. Um, just, you know, seek out the resources because it will really help. And as, as we've talked about, a lot of these strategies are good teaching strategies anyway. So they'll, they'll benefit you even if you don't have an EL. And sometimes you have an EL and then maybe you go for years and you don't. So, um, but those strategies, once you have them in your toolbox, they're there. And hopefully you'll pull them out when the next DL comes. No, you're you're definitely right. If we can find a way to to do that, I think it would it would go a long way towards helping these districts who are you know working through it and doing their best to try and try and meet those needs. So if if people would like to get a a hold of you, um, what, what's the best way to to reach out? Uh, so you can find me through the ESC of Central Ohio's website. Um, if you click on Educator Services on English Learners, um, I have a web page there with resources uh, and my email. But my email is Jill J I L L dot Kramer K R A M E R at ESCCO.org. Uh, so you can certainly contact me if you need resources. Go find my my page. Um, my uh, just you know contact me and I'm more than happy to point people in the right direction that's what I do day in and day out and and I really enjoy this work so I feel you know please feel free to reach out if you have any questions about any aspect of working with ELs. 
Well, thank you so much. I just really appreciate you joining us today. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I, I love talking about English learners and I just appreciate the opportunity to join your podcast. Thanks again. Well, this wraps up this episode of the State Support Team 11 podcast. If you'd like to know more about us and the work we do here at SST 11, go to our website, sst11.org. Give us a call at 614-753-4694 or hit us up on Twitter. We're at SST Region 11. If you'd like to get a hold of me, I'm at eric.neal at esccoorg. Until next time, I'm Eric Neal. Thanks for listening.